When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Brown, the host of a channel, and I am currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history focusing on environment and science. Today, we'll be talking to Vincent Ilente about his new book, Deep Time Reckoning, How Future Thinking Can Help Earth Now, published by the MIT Press in 2020, a part of the One Planet series. Um, Vincent Alente, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, before diving in, we just like to uh, ask a little bit about your your background. Um, is there is there anything you'd like to uh, to to tell us um, about that that side of things? Yeah, sure. So, I'm an anthropologist, a social uh, anthropologist. I was trained um, at Cornell University. That's where I got my PhD. Uh, but I study the culture of nuclear waste experts uh, and the nuclear industry more broadly. Um, so I did my first fieldwork uh, project on the world's first, um, what's likely to be the world's first operational high-level nuclear waste repository for spent fuel, so used up nuclear fuel rods from uh, nuclear energy uh, power plants um, uh, up in Finland. Uh, I spent um, probably about, well, 35 months, total of 35 months, so more than two and a half years, uh, there doing interviews for that for my doctoral dissertation at Cornell. And then after I did another study of um, uh, the transuranic defense nuclear waste repository at, uh, in southeastern uh, New Mexico uh, called WIP. Um, and uh, that uh, project is my sort of postdoctoral project that I did um, after graduating. Uh, so I'm an anthropologist and I, I'm particularly interested in uh, uh, time, the temporal formations uh, that um, come up around uh, nuclear waste. People often talk about the multi-millennial timescales associated with nuclear waste, but I also done projects on uh, sort of intergenerational succession uh, related um, to the nuclear waste industry because these are really long-term, multi-decade, sometimes centurial projects um, to build nuclear reactors, have the waste cool on the surface, and then put them in um, nuclear waste uh, repositories, finally, hopefully, someday. Um, and uh, I've also done things on the rapid fire temporalities or tempos, uh, temporal formations surrounding the financing of nuclear reactors and, um, and the cleaning up of waste across the U.S. and shipping it uh, on highways. Those are sort of uh, shorter turn time scales, too. Uh, so that's my background, basically, anthropologist who studies nuclear waste experts ethnographically. Perfect. And so, I mean, uh, deep time reckoning is 
is an, is an epitome of, of your interest. It feels like, um, would you, would you like to, uh, talk a little bit just about the book, about how you, you came to, to write this specific book and, uh, then we can really get into the, the details of it. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I had, I, I didn't like grow up with nuclear materials around me or actually I did. I mean, everyone did. Uh, <laughs> I didn't grow up with them any more around me than anyone else. Um, uh, you know, but by that, I mean, uh, uh, you know, atmospheric nuclear weapons testing during the cold war put radionuclides all across the earth. And, uh, most people in the United States, for instance, are within a couple hundred miles at least of, um, uh, nuclear waste building up at nuclear power plants because there's no final solution for, uh, spent nuclear fuel to be, uh, put deep in the ground quite yet. Now the Yucca mountain project in Nevada is defunct. Um, then there's nuclear power plants scattered around uh, the U.S. and other sort of uh, weapons production facilities that people often don't notice. But this was all invisible to me <laughs> initially um, growing up. And uh, in, in, in um, college, actually, I had to do a senior thesis, and I got really interested in uh, the clock of the long now uh, and um, uh, the long now foundation's broader projects to uh, engineer something that's really um, enduring uh, a clock that will tick uh, and, and keep time for um, 10 millennia. Um, so I got interested in that project and started thinking, what are some other contexts in which really slow long-term uh, engineering or institutional planning or, or, uh, or, or, or sort of Promethean ventures in continuity um, come about? And um, I, so I looked at the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. This is way back in the day. This is when I'm a philosophy, um, a legal philosophy PhD student um, I was like 22 or something. I started looking at the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, you know, to keep the genetic backup of uh, seeds just in case there's some sort of calamity and uh, something goes extinct or we lose a certain genetic strain through monocultures. That's another slow engineering, uh, long-term engineering project. And I started looking at nuclear waste repositories too, uh, like the Yucca Mountain project that was currently being built then. So um, and that's the one I really found interesting. I, so I, I decided to keep with it. I did a master's degree at the London School of Economics um, and then did a study of uh, the legal adjudicatory form uh, of, 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 of how the procedure for licensing the Yucca Mountain Project, Yucca, um, Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository Project in Nevada uh, was structured. Um, and what I came up with there uh, was sort of... Um, taking sort of old school legal anthropological studies of uh, uh, legal adjudication and, and, and rituals and then saying, hey, you know, there's all this sort of sci-fi high modernist aesthetic surrounding um, this Yucca Mountain Repository project. You know, they're trying to bury something for a million years and a million year time horizon. But really, there's this really ancient adjudicatory heritage um, uh, behind the way the procedure itself works. In other words, you have the Department of Energy creating these uh, systems analysis or performance assessment models in these this one million year time horizon to try to predict how local land formations and well water and populations um, will be kept safe or not safe from the uh, nuclear waste buried in, in in the mountain there, even though that project is now defunct. Um, so they had to have had to produce facts in the time horizon of um, a million years, and then they had to produce. Um, and they had to produce those facts because the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S. had radionuclide or radiological dose limit standards um, operating in those same time horizons. So you had to show, demonstrate it to um, um, 
demonstrate safety within the time horizons, compliance horizons, as they call it, defined by the Environmental Protection Agency. And then the third part, so it's, you know, um, you have the, the Department of Energy creating the million-year facts. You have the Environmental Protection Agency establishing the million-year rule. And then you have the judge, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, taking the DOE's facts and the EPA's rules, subsuming them together and rendering judgment. This is the same three-part adjudicatory structure um, we've uh, seen in any, you know, adjudicatory process or legal process since ancient Rome, basically, since ancient Roman law. Rule, fact, judge. At this time, they're not played out by individual, you know, corporeal people um, living and breathing. Uh, they're played out by large institutions. But the three roles there and the relations they play to each other are very similar. So I, I found that fascinating. Um, and I decided, okay, I want to take a deeper look at this. I want to do something ethnographic. I want to be embedded in the nuclear industry. So I applied for a PhD program at Cornell. Um, this is 2010. I got in, um, I got a National Science Foundation grant to live in Finland for the amount of time, you know, for the 35 months I mentioned, it was a three-year grant. Um, and I decided I wanted to see how this all works on the ground. So I studied the safety case um, for Finland's um, uh, spent nuclear fuel repository project in Okiloro. Um, and that became the basis of uh, the book that we're talking about today. So that's a kind of broader backdrop that brought me there and brought me to this idea of using ethnography to see how visions of distant future worlds and uh, uh, the, the structures of Promethean optimism that surround them are kind of papered into everyday knowledge practices and subsumed to uh, frameworks that are either A, tethered to the present or B, tethered to a much deeper history. And uh, out of this spawn this book. There is so much there yeah. to, to talk about. I, I love it. Um, I, it's, it's, it's really interesting that you bring in the Roman law and, and even present or demonstrate how, how the legal system has this genealogy of deep time that may not be um, realized by, by everybody. Or, or if, the, if it's realized, it may not be appreciated. And, and, and this is something that I, I feel like you're trying to get through through the whole book is is really trying to imagine our, our past and our, our present. Um, and, and to do that, you're, you're using what you're calling reckoning, reckonings. Um, and, and you call it the tools in the toolkit that offer open-ended takeaway guidance um, that leave behind uh, each step of the way. I, 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 where, did you, where did you come across the idea of reckonings and, and using that as kind of a device to, um, to, to present deep time? Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, so I, I show up to Finland in, um, let's see, uh, right around right around New Year's of 2011. Um, I remember because I showed up and the, during the New Year's celebration, they're blasting Nightwish. And there was this, this very uh, metal New Year's celebration that they're having right at the Senate Square um, in the center of the capital of Finland. And I thought it was really interesting. It was very dark. It was in the dark of winter at such a high latitude. Um, so yeah, I showed up right around New Year's, I believe the day before New Year's 2011. Um, and I started interviewing people. I interviewed, um, I did 120 interviews by the end of my time there. Um, and I asked people what captures their imagination about their work. Well, what I discovered, um, was these fascinating visions of far future, um, ice ages, uh, um, landscape changes, human and animal population changes. Uh, far future permafrost, um, all sorts of 
really interesting visions for what's going to happen to Finland uh, papered into this um, safety case ritual uh, that they have to perform to show, uh, well, that the Finnish nuclear industry has to perform. So specifically, it's done by this company called Posiva, uh, which is owned um, by uh, TVO and Fortum, which are both um, Finnish uh, nuclear power holding companies. Um, and they have to show the nuclear regulatory authority Stuk uh, in Finland um, that this repository is going to be safe. Um, on the surface for 10,000 years, they have to create systems analysis models of, of, of the safety there. And then uh, below the surface uh, in the orders of hundreds of thousands of years. So uh, deep time, it became this kind of mundane institutional artifact, right? Like this kind of uh, uh, banal feature or, you know, pile of, uh, you know, gr- uh, reports on someone's desk or like a, a, a geologic timetable on someone's wall, a conversation in the hallway. That's what deep time was from an ethnographic perspective. Um, and, and, and it was really fascinating because it didn't have this kind of uh, aesthetics of, you know, similar to my previous study on, on, on the adjudicatory form that goes back for, um, um, you know, uh, centuries and millennia. Um, it didn't have this air of mystery or uh, sublime unknowability um, or sci-fi aesthetics that's often associated with the deep time, deep planetary horizons of nuclear waste. It was very much a uh, deep time was something that was uh, emerged from the everyday schedules, deadlines, planning time horizons, um, uh, career horizons. You know, um, we, we have to get this paper in by Friday evening. I have to take my kid to the dentist before that. How do I put this together? Those were the time horizons in which, um, the safety case experts visions of deep time came about in the Finnish nuclear waste repository project. So I found this pretty interesting. Um, so the most interesting things were, uh, you know, the main evidentiary thrust of the safety case was, was just looking 500 meters underground, right? Like they're going to build this uh, nuclear waste repository. Um, and uh, they're, they're going to bring the spent nuclear fuel uh, down in these large uh, uh, copper canisters, right? So that they're encapsulated on the surface um, on site. And they're going to bring them down, uh, weld them. Uh, they're going to be welded shut. Uh, and they're going to um, become some of the large, largest man-made um, or human-made pieces of of copper in existence. They're going to bring bring the spent f- nuclear fuel bottle uh, bundles down there. Um, they're also going to be in this, there's going to be, you know, there's cast iron components inside of that too. They're going to put them in deposition holes, surround them with uh, bentonite clay, which is this really absorbent type of clay. And then they're going to um, uh, cap it off. And then the clay is going to absorb um, the, um, uh, the water, the groundwater uh, from the site. So they're trying to figure out the the far future of of this nuclear waste repository. So they create these models in the safety case of how, um, um, you know, fourteen different types of radionuclides could be released from this, and then travel through groundwater channels, right, like uh, uh, upward um, uh, over the coming hundreds or thousands of years. Um, some of them will make it to the surface. So then they model out, they model how, um, different release points at which the radionuclides will be released. Uh, maybe they'll be released into lakes, rivers, mires. Uh, then they'll, uh, some of them will bioaccumulate in plants and animals in the far future, according to the safety case. Um, 
And then some of them, they actually simulate <laughs> 6,000 far future people um, living in the Okiloto area, eating only local food, um, which is an interesting idea. And um, uh, because that region probably can't support 6,000 people eating only local food, but they do that as a conservative assumption to show we're being almost impossibly pessimistic about how um, we're presenting uh, their potential radionuclide uh, radiological risk. Um, so uh, they actually model 6,000 people. The first one goes out, eats the worst possible food, comes back. Second one goes out, eats the second most contaminated stuff, comes back. Then they get this critical group, right? Um, this group of people, this critical group of people who have the most exposure thanks to um, the nuclear waste repository. And then that becomes kind of the basis for discerning um, how the repository will uh, save or not save people from radiological, uh, from, um, from harm in the future. Um, so this is interesting. Uh, this is a, a rare, uh, uh, fascinating scene um, in which deep time becomes shallow in the sense of in, embedded in the everyday time horizons of institutional life. And I would say this is a reckoning um, uh, in my book. This is a moment of reckoning in the sense of uh, we're reckoning with our place in the deeper history of the planet uh, during the what some call the Anthropocene, though that's not officially inaugurated as a geologic epoch yet. Uh, it's, it's trended quite a bit in the social and natural sciences. Um, we're living in a time where we have to widen the time horizons of our, of our intellects. We have to create institutions uh, that operate in um, extremely long-term time spans. And there's, this, there's these places here and there, one of them being Okiloto in Finland, where people are reckoning with this very issue. They're coming to terms with it by you know, investing millions or eventually billions of dollars in this and um, um, hiring PhDs and consultants and uh, engineers and geotechnical engineers and um, uh, you know, all sorts of different geoscientists and modelers and mathematicians and chemists and um, biologists and microbiologists and ecologists and pulling them together into this safety case collaboration to reckon with our place um, in the larger history of our planet. So that's where the term reckoning comes from in my book. And that's the context in which um, I extracted it ethnographically uh, as an anthropologist. Oh man, that's so interesting. Just the idea that these, that, that these folks enter into, into this, this, this world and, and it just becomes, and deep time becomes institutionalized. Um, did did you did you know going in that that this was going to kind of be the outcome, or was this the thing that you were exploring? Well, the deep time was definitely part of the proposal, but any anthropologist worth their you know worth their salt, you don't it, you kind of failed if you show up to the field and then uh, your research question remains the same when you return a few years later. Um, so uh, fieldwork is supposed to necessarily challenge your assumptions, of course, challenge your presumptions and uh, pre-existing biases about how things are supposed to look. So I already talked a little about how like the aesthetic shift of deep time being something I read about and um, sort of these um, kind of pop science literatures. Uh, people talk about like building uh, monuments um, over Whip or Yucca Mountain. Uh, to warn far future societies not to dig there. They talk about, you know, different scenarios of how nuclear waste could be mined in the far future, et cetera. There's a, there's kind of like a, 
pre-existing cultural space for talking about the multi-millennial communication challenges posed by nuclear waste. But then you show up into Finland and it's all paperwork and numbers and documents. So I think the the most interesting deep time futurologies turned out to be in the most banal and mundane technical uh, uh, regulatory science reports there. Um, so that's one shift that happened. The other one was a, 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 a truly strange one is when I show up, I expect you, you know, you're, I'm waiting for everyone to be talking about deep time, but what everyone's talking about is um, unfortunately the tragic death of one of their colleagues um, a couple of years before I showed up in 2005. Uh, one of the guys who, ran the systems analysis project for the safety case, uh, was in a, uh, slipped on the ice, um, and unfortunately passed away. But, um, this threw the project into disarray, um, because he was known for having kind of, a, a, a difficult personality. People described getting fired by him a few times <laughs> and, uh, people talked about, uh, him storming out of the room, angry during meetings or not pay, barely paying attention. People talked about him, um, kind of, uh, you know, getting mad at the secretaries when books weren't delivered on time for him and things like that. Uh, but he, he ran, he was a, a pr- prolific, brilliant, intense uh, systems analyst, safety case uh, expert um, working on this project. Um, but he kind of he, he kind of didn't pass that systems knowledge on to A, a protege um, or uh, someone to mentor. He didn't really mentor someone to replace him. And then he also... Uh, kind of delegated tasks. So no one, everyone kind of did their task, but no one had full systems knowledge of how to put the safety case together. Um, So he dies in this bike accident. The project goes into disarray. So when I show up um, years later, people are still saying, what would, what would Seppo do here? What would Seppo do there? He almost haunted the field site. Um, He was, uh, he was an absent present or a present absence uh, in the field site. And, and he's still kind of, when people would recollect how he would put safety case models together, they would kind of summon or conjure or channel him into the present. So he still had this, this agency uh, in producing um, these visions of the future uh, on this highly technical project. So I didn't expect to see that. That's for sure. Um, I didn't expect to go into the field, um, you know, looking for deep time and then to find a story about uh, a single lifespan cut short, um, or a single, you know, uh, the, the, the tempo of, um, of, of generational succession and, uh, of the preservation of key experts and the knowledge that uh, might be tacit knowledge or embodied knowledge that needs to be preserved. Um, so I did a whole project. I, I wrote a chapter in the book on that. And I wrote, um, um, an article in physics today, uh, the, uh, for that about that in an article in the uh, J- Journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute about that case study. So that was completely surprising when I got there. Yeah, and that that Seppo case study was so interesting to to hear because in that chapter where where you're talking about that, I also was starting to get I, I was starting to think about like individualism and the collective and and those 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 cultural norms that we have cultivated for ourselves seem to kind of go out the window when we face mortality because we're not necessarily going to get the recognition for in 10,000 or 100,000 years when these these infrastructures are still protecting the people from from the things that we have uh, that that we have we have done with like radiation and and, and this nuclear waste um, 
but but the other part of this was like that that creation of knowledge and and the idea that it took it takes you know up to if not more a decade to really situate yourself or oneself into deep time reckoning um do you want to speak on that a little bit yeah i mean that's that's kind of what made seppo's long-termist systems analysis expertise so coveted and that's kind of what helped him get away with being kind of a um an abrasive character to his colleagues occasionally because he was so he made himself so uh essential to the project um by being so competent and it's such a narrow type of expertise like i mean um finland wasn't supposed to be the world's first wasn't originally intended to be the world's first uh spent nuclear fuel repository they thought um that you know the U.S. would go first with Yucca Mountain, and until that was sort of uh, uh, def- um, unfunded um, or defunded and uh, made defunct during the Obama administration, with uh, uh, Harry Reid was involved with that. After you know, after decades of, of 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 political opposition and litigation in Nevada, so that went out. But you know, Finland assumed in the early '80s when they set these schedules in like '82 and '83. Um, that, you know, France would come before them and the U.S. and Canada and Germany and Switzerland and UK, et cetera. And they assumed Sweden, too, because Sweden actually did most of the designs. The name of the, um, um, it's a KBS-3 nuclear waste repository concept, and this was originally pioneered in Sweden, and then Finland kind of picked it up um, after, and uh, uh, a lot of the R&D work was done uh, by their friendly neighbors to the to the West. Um so, though they do a, a type of welding that's unique um, in Finland, uh, that's different that they don't do in Finland, uh, that they don't do in Sweden. Um, so anyway, uh, they're the first, right? And then so there's not many nuclear waste repository projects. There's not many people doing these deep time reckoning, what I call deep time reckoning in the book, but these uh, safety case projects across the world. Um, there was one, as I mentioned earlier, for the Yucca Mountain project operating in a million year time horizon. Uh, that's that's worth googling. Um, it's a uh, it's the total systems performance assessment models uh, that they were making for the construction licensing procedure. You're talking thousands of pages of documentation about um, how uh, uh, Nevada will look uh, millennia hence. Um, so there there are these little pockets um, across the world in which this type of thinking goes on. But Seppo was in one of the very few pockets. So he can't really get a job elsewhere uh, because he's so specialized in this one thing you'd have to retrain a lot. But he's also, after this 10 years of just learning how to do this type of nuclear waste science, uh, he made himself um, pretty irreplaceable uh, because it takes so long. You you know, uh, you need a master's or usually a PhD. He had a PhD and then um, lots of on-the-job training too to just uh, put yourself into this niche. And there's actually a lot of concerns about who, where is this expertise going to go in the U.S.? Because in order to build that expertise in a country, you usually need an active repository project um, being built. So we have uh, this whole cadre of experts in the U.S. Um, because we had the Yucca Mountain Project and the WIP um, isolation pilot plant for low, for lower um, level waste, um, intermediate level waste, for transuranic waste specifically, so that um, um, from Cold War and Manhattan Project, et cetera. So um, we've had a generation of people building repositories. So there's a practical expertise here, but um, once we don't need more, we don't really have that expertise. You need an active project to cultivate that. But there are countries, you know, making progress with their re- repository programs, like Canada, for instance, or um, 
you know, they're looking at site selection right now and um, Finland and Sweden. Sweden's will be soon after Finland. Um, Finland will probably have theirs go online in the mid 2020s and then Sweden probably a few years after, if I had to guess. Um, so yeah, Seppo was pretty unique and, and he had all this, this rare expertise in, in embodied in him basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. And, and, and to kind of zoom it out to like the, the national level, um, you talk in the, in the introduction about, um, a Greek citizen who complained that the Finns lacked like a poetic predisposition and, and like criticized their sober pragmatism. But it seems like part of, part of this, this pragmatic spirit has, has been allowed or allowed them to just introduce this deep time into like an institution, institutional bureaucracy without them um, really batting an eye. I mean, it probably wasn't that easy, but um, like, is this, is, is, is the case of Finland a very special case or is this something that can be, uh, can, can be transposed to different, to different places and different cultural sensibilities? Yeah, that's another question I address in the book. Um, Finland is, you know, uh, renowned or notorious or depending how you see it across the world for, um, for the uh, large amount of trust they place in, in, in say in different types of experts. So, um, uh, ministries like the ministry of employment and the economy, that's the institution under which the entire Finnish nuclear complex is kind of administrated. And, um, like the Finnish nuclear regulatory authority, uh, regulators are highly trusted. Um, um, uh, Pilots are highly trusted, police, legal system. Um, uh, and there's this, in the political sphere, the, the keywords are consensus and pragmatism um, are, the, are, are the codes of the road there. Um, there's also kind of a tradition of um, uh, a lot of people link uh, the success of Finland's uh, education system to it being built on trust. Uh, the, the teachers trust the, um, the kids to do their homework. The parents trust the teachers. The teachers are highly paid. The, the, the society trusts them enough to, um, uh, have a strong enough, uh, union. As it is. So, um, trust is often presented as the foundation for why Finland had a nuclear waste repository with, without a huge amount of, uh, NIMBY, not in my backyard resistance. Um, and there's definitely something to that. Uh, a lot of people put the Okiluoto repository project in, that I profile in my book um, on a pedestal uh, because they have a consent-based citing procedure. In other words, um, back in the early 2000s, uh, Finland is just, is looking for a place to um, you know cite this repository. That they, they come to this conclusion in the late 90s, right? That it's going to be um, in Okiloro. Uh, so the nearby community uh, of Eroraioki um, is actually given a, a full legally binding veto. They can say after the sort of environmental impact assessments are done, after um, after it's, there's this participatory public hearings that go on between the nuclear industry and the locals, after all this is kind of hashed out in this uh, socio-technical controversy that's going on, the local community can say, nope, sorry, you didn't convince us, get out of here, uh, which is unique, you know, because there's the, the Yucca Mountain stereotype is def- decide, announce, defend. And that's what really um, uh, led to trouble in the, in, the, in the Nevada context because they put it 
in um, a place that was right near the Nevada test site. So a place that's been nuclear bombed hundreds of times uh, by us doing, you know, by the U.S. government uh, doing nuclear tests on its own soil and originally above ground and then underground. Um, it's close proximity to a lot of indigenous communities. Uh, originally, it was just shoved in, in 1987. Um, they decided to shove the, uh, the Yucca Mountain Project in the backyard of you know, Nye County, Nevada. They called it the Screw Nevada Bill that decided to do that. So that is a decide, announce, defend approach. And we see what happens when you do that. Um, it leads to lots of litigation and discord in the U.S. context. Of course, that's a very different context. The U.S. context has this whole history of um, kind of nuclear settler colonialism on its own soil. Like, I mean, the, 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 the uh, throughout, I mean, you know, I did field work in New Mexico later and it's, it's just everywhere. I mean, there's, there was uranium mining uh, in Grant's uh, district there. There was a, a Sandia National Lab making ICBMs to, you know, deliver nuclear weapons. There's Los Alamos National Lab, the birthplace of the atomic bomb. There's like the WIP repository in the south, uh, the southeast, um, and there's the Nome site, which is an old nuclear weapons test. There's the Trinity site, which is the world's first nuclear weapons explosion. So these are all things that are pretty invisible um, unless you go out looking for them. But they're scattered across the U.S. There's but there's this legacy of mistrust in the Department of Energy. It used to be the Atomic Energy Commission because there's been, you know, st- stories of, um, you know, things have been leaked about uh, testing. Um, uh, you know, injecting radiological substances into uh, materials into uh, unwitting subjects and exposing people to do testing on human populations, et cetera. Um, there's a whole history of uh, the fallout from these nuclear weapons tests in Nevada nearby going all across the country and, you know, ending up in milk or, or you know, or bioaccumulating um, in honey to this day, for instance. Um, so, there's that's kind of the broader backdrop nuclear weapons in the in the u.s uh and um oftentimes nuclear waste repositories are put in places where there's indigenous people or marginal communities that's by no means unique to the united states you see that in australia uh with aboriginal communities as well um so anyway finland is not like that uh they don't have this uh settler colonial history they don't have a nuclear bomb as a history they just have these four nuclear power plants. There are possibly five. Well, there's going to be five, a fifth one going on. Uh, eventually, that's actually was supposed to go online in Okiloto 3. supposed to go online in 2009. Um, but it's still kind of delayed and over budget. And hope, you know, it, they hope it'll go online sometime in the next few years. Um, but Finland doesn't have all that baggage associated with it, really. So that there wasn't much. Uh, they, they had a you're in this society where there's a lot of trust in experts, a lot of trust in ministries, a lot of trust in regulatory authorities. Um, and you're in a, you're in a community that was able to reject the repository legally and was given the trust to do that with this uh, consent based citing procedure. Uh, but ultimately it raises the question of how difficult was it really to get that consent in the first place without all that other baggage that you see in other countries. So yeah, Finland is unique. That's true. Uh, Whether you can just simply outsource that consent-based citing procedure and put it in a different context and have it work there, I don't think so. Yeah, that's interesting. And 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 you you talk about the deflation of expertise a lot in your book. Um, The idea that there's a 
just a global scale. It's and it's on a global level where there's a skepticism of technocratic knowledge to liberal arts education, um, and and even like a single shared reality where something like the Anthropocene or or um, the Earth's death spiral, as you say, um, <laughs> which which I really like, um, is is not necessarily a a narrative that a lot of people subscribe to but then at the same time you're in chapter one um how to ride analogies across deep time you you are able to really show how we can navigate this would you like to talk a little bit about your um your reckonings in in um this this first chapter in terms of reimagining landscape and urban areas and and figuring out ways to to sharpen our tools to be able to um propel or to, to be able to navigate these ch- very challenging waters yeah so that the, the deflation of expertise part um that that's another frame uh in which i kind of contextualize um my main arguments in the book uh which is you know the basic idea being you, an anthropologist goes over to finland and then plucks little kernels of uh deep time thinking or long-term uh uh, uh, reasoning uh, from these people who have a quite intimate relationship with it uh, um, because they they work with these timescales all the time at work. It's normalized for them. And then he, well, I, go back to the U.S. Um, in 2014 to write my doctoral dissertation about how they think deep time. And I, I see this like what, what stands out, you know, the reverse culture, not a huge culture shock, but the minor reverse culture shock of returning to your, you know, home society after doing field work reveals wow, this is the run-up to the Trump years. And um, there's these populist uh, uh, movements uh, welling up. There's um, lots of being written about uh, kind of the corporatization of universities and um, uh, the sort of uh, neoliberal backdrop to uh, scientific knowledge production um, and a lot, um, you know, post-truth, and uh, alternative facts become mainstream buzzwords. Um, you know who is elected president. Uh, we're seeing so a lot of. Uh, I saw extremely different approach to expertise than what I saw in Finland. Um, so I decided to delve a little deeper in that and turn this book into kind of a thought experiment. Like what, what would what would it look like if we follow the Finns? Um, follow the Finns following the nuclear industry envisioning deep time. So uh, in my book, I say, okay, instead of trying to pull the rug out from under uh, their deep time reckonings uh, models or showing, trying to deconstruct them or, 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 or show that they're these like uh, show their fictive qualities and just throw them out the window. I say, no, let's, t- let's try to see deep time through the eyes of the Finnish safety case expert. And what you see there. Um, is what I think is a really subtle um, um, and and nuanced epistemic sensibility I didn't quite realize that they would have. A lot of the social science, if you read it, you'd think that people making these performance assessment models across such long time spans are kind of drink their own Kool-Aid and they think they're making perfect one-to-one representations of reality. They think that they are, are, are perfect predictors of the future and this is an absolute representation. There's a lot of straw man portraits of how these people think. So the, the thing that becomes clear when doing my 120 interviews is that a lot of them say, you know, these are just educated guesses. This is less a, a science of perfectly predicting the future 
than an art of navigating uncertainty. It's less um, uh, 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 sort of positivism or scientism and more this kind of quasi-fictive, quasi-fictive, uh, um, quasi pragmatic, um, um, reductive, edu- highly educated guess with lots of resources going into it. So their goal is to create a credible process for imagining the future less than, um, less than uh, creating a perfect representation of what it'll be. And the way they do this is... is pretty sophisticated. They made the models that I talked about before, these systems analysis models, but they also um, made prose scenarios about, you know, uh, that go, m- you know, million years into the future of waxing and waning uh, ice ages, you know, a huge glacial ice sheet comes over Finland and then retreats. Um, they also made analogies, um, as you just pointed out. Um, um, they looked at uh, cannon um, from the shipwreck 17th century uh, warship from Sweden, the Cronin. Um, this is a bronze cannon, so it's kind of similar materials as the huge copper canisters. So they they looked at the past, you know, a couple hundred years of corrosion in the Baltic Sea. You know, it's half half submerged in clay and then half um, exposed to the abrasive, corrosive seawater. And they say, like, uh, they use it as an analog for determining the long term safety of the repository. They look, they do other things like that too, like the cast iron pieces of the, the copper uh, of the nuclear waste canisters. They made analogies with ancient Roman nails um, uh, that they found in Scotland uh, and say, like, look at here, we can learn something about how these corroded and then apply that knowledge we have of how these fared over the, you know, over the centuries, apply that to how the similar materials in our nuclear waste repository will fare in the future. They also said, okay, there's going to be a huge glacial ice sheet um, over the repository during the next ice age, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 years from now. Well, we can't study, you know, a glacial ice sheet in Finland now because there isn't one there, but we can go to Greenland and then study the Kongerlusawak ice sheet there as an analog uh, for what far future Finland might look like, right? So they made analogies too. So there's all these different lines of reasoning as my fieldwork informants called them. There's quantitative lines of reasoning. There's mechanical stress testing done on the different repository components. Uh, there's ecological field work being fed into these biosphere assessment models. Uh, when I talked about like trying to create depictions of how uh, radionuclides will bioaccumulate or not in plants and animals along the way as they, as they dis, uh, disperse um, and transport through far future ecosystems, there's... Um, and then there's just basic engineering arguments for how it works too. So there's multiple lines of reasoning. Um, and the idea is there's this kind of strategic redundancy in how you engage the future. So that's, that's one of the lessons or the reckonings. I call them at the end of my chapter, I call them reckonings. What are the little kernels of wisdom we can pull uh, from the safety case experts? And so some of these reckonings, as you mentioned, are, have to do with analogical reasoning. Like the question is, how can I walk through my life um, making these kind of uh, speculative, highly imaginative, r- extremely reductive analogies, just as little heuristics, right? Just as little thought experiments or mental exercises, not assuming that I'm definitely predicting the future, but assuming that at least it gives me something a little more tangible and concrete to think with. Um, so I create little exercises for um, for my readers, right? Like, so I talk about, I lived in Washington, D.C., um, when I was working at George Washington University when I was writing the book, I used to 
walk by this uh, bald cypress tree in Lafayette, um, Lafayette Square right behind the White House. Um, and there's this cypress tree that's very similar to the cypress trees that were there 100,000 years ago when Washington, D.C. was this, you know, marshland and prehistoric marshland or swamp type of area. And that cypress tree becomes a window through analogical reasoning into the far future, right? So, but why did I start doing that? Well, I started doing that because the safety case experts taught me how to do that. They taught me how to do it with the Cronin cannon in the Swedish warship. They told me how to do it with the Scottish nails. They told me how to do it with, um, you know, the Greenland um, glacial ice sheet and Congerloose walk. And then I go back to the U.S. and I am finding analogs in my midst. And you can do it elsewhere, right? Like you can go to, um, what's another one uh, in, in the book? Yeah, okay, the Garfield Fern Room um, in Chicago. There's this like room that you can go to in the conservatory. Um, and then you see all these plants that are very similar to, you know, Jurassic times and when you leave, you can imagine what your surroundings were like in Jurassic times as you're walking down the streets of Chicago. So I encourage readers to do these little um, exercises in, the, in their everyday lives directly inspired by the way the safety case experts reckoned uh, with deep time. And to do so in that kind of subtle epistemological sensibility that I laid out er- earlier of this is a, a method of uncertainty navigation and a way of coming up with some sort of more tangible, more pragmatic, um, more concrete ways of thinking about the far future, but never tricking yourself into thinking you're doing anything other than um, uh, making educated guesses. And and, and that's how a safety case expert kind of thinks. Uh, We're going to try to get better over time. Uh, For example, the safety case is going to, yeah, that's another reckoning in there about um, iteration, all right? There's different iterations of the safety case. There's one that you know, they made some of their first safety models in the 1985 when they're picking the site. There's another one, Tila 99, Tila 92, Tila 99, you know, in 1992, 1999, respectively. Um, the big one for the, can we actually build the nuclear waste repository? Can we get regulatory permission? They submitted that safety case in 2012. Um, another one is due in the next few years. Uh, it was originally the operational license once POSIVA, the nuclear industry in Finland, gets the permission for that. And that safety case is approved by the regulator and the Ministry of, you know, and stamped by the Ministry of Employment and Economy. It's another safety case for that. And when I was there, they told me, okay, we're going to update the safety case. We're going to do new iterations for every um, every 10 or 15 years um, until the year 2120, when they're actually going to cap off the repository. And... Uh, and just kind of abandon it, or not abandon it, but to leave the site and stop burning there. So there'll be a decommissioning safety case at that point. So you're talking about constant iterations and the idea, you know, every few years. And the idea is that every iteration should be a higher resolution image of what the future is like. So that's also how a safety case expert thinks, right? Um, it's constantly taking new information, um, getting new, collecting new information, but also realizing new gaps in your knowledge, you know, really you realize there's more uncertainties and also as you're gaining more uncertainties as time goes on, because you're constantly collecting new information, challenging your own assumptions and iterating and reiterating is another reckoning in the book, right? That I encourage readers to do another little kernel of deep time thinking that I, I kind of spin off from the way the safety case experts thought. So uh, constantly iterating with yourself and collecting information. I call it deep time learning in the book. 
Yeah, and I really like that. I, it's it's such a cool. That's that's the way that I want to learn, and I think that's the way that I've been trying to to kind of take my master's program is, and 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 because I'm I'm researching the development of botanical knowledge in oh. in uh, the the early twentieth century, and so um, I, I'm trying to do that same same type of thing, especially in terms of these 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 subtle epistemological sensibilities that really determine how how we how how I don't know humans I guess interpret the world and I, I thought it was really interesting too this this idea of redundancy and then you talk about like these simple patterns um, of repetition like the input and output pattern and so like in this conversation of like long linear time um, along with these case studies like there's this sense of uh, like a cyclical time that is part of like this practice or this ritual Uh, is, is that a, is that a correct reading? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's, it's cyclical. There's the safety case is the safety, the safety case, you know, um, kind of grows in time. Uh, Yeah. That's the second chapter in the book. So, uh, that's that chapter with input and output is about how, okay, we have to, you know, I'm a safety case expert and I have to make, um, this is how they think, uh, which is my book kind of exposits how they think. That's why I'm framing it this way. Um, so it's an anthropology of reason in pa- Paul Rabinow's sense um, for the anthropologists out there. So um, one thing I got interested in is when they're weaving together these multi-millennial models of, you know, distant future ecosystems and hydro- hydrogeological phenomena and human and animal populations, um, et cetera, and ice ages. Um, how does this project expand and expand over the decades through all these different cyclical iterations of, you know, um, uh, finishing one and then opening up another one and taking in more information and expanding it and then closing it off again, um, publishing a new version, then setting out again and then collecting more information, updating the models making them more sophisticated, more fine-grained, more high-resolution, closing it out again, keep iterating. How does it stay together? What's the basic sort of unifying thread or connective tissue or DNA or um, or skeleton that holds these models together? Um, because this is, you know, this, this is multiple generations of, of experts, right? Like if you start assessing sites in 1985 and you're not closing it until... 2120, there's going to be a lot of, you have to keep it going as a coherent project, right? And, and how do you do that when it, it just turns into thousands and thousands of, of pages and, you know, hundreds of reports? So the idea, the thing that connects all the models is something very simple, right? That, that gets to the heart of how computers work um, and uh, systems analysis works. It's the input-output form. Uh, in other words, like, you know, um, some experts made models of how the groundwater flowed, right? And those models produced outputs um, of, you know, uh, determinations of how that will work. Those outputs were then taken as inputs um, into the biosphere assessment models, um, which produced outputs um, that were fed into yet other models, etc. cetera. Um, there's these radionuclide uh, transport models that show that kind of inserted um, uh, different trajectories and routes that the, uh, the radionuclides might travel on as they were going underground from the repository, you know, 450 meters depth all the way up to the surface. Um, and, you know, 
the groundwater flow models were inputs into that, uh, right? And then they produce the radionuclide transport model produces outputs that are then fed into the biosphere model. So the idea is that input output is something that a logic through which you can talk about any scale, level, or domain of the entire repository port, the entire safety case portfolio, right? So there's this fractal quality to it. Um, in the sense that when you zoom in on any report, you can talk about the report through the lens of input-output. What are the inputs going in? What are the outputs going out? What, you know, what's being fed into this? And when it spits out numbers, where are we feeding those into after? Or you zoom way out to the treetops, the broader, um, broader uh, architecture of how everything fits together. It's all input-output inputs and outputs too. So that's kind of this really ancient, another ancient, you know, um, uh, similar to the adjudicatory formula I talked about in the beginning of this, like there's this really ancient um, division between in and out and part and whole. I mean, the ancient Greeks had a whole subfield of philosophy called uh, Mariology or Mirology, um, uh, which is just basically the philosophy of parts and whole relationships. And um, uh, so there's something deeply ancient about this type of thinking and at, at the core it's extremely simple the way it all works. Um, there's, you know, and there's books on this too. There's Danny Hillis's book, Pattern in the Stone. is very much about even the most sophisticated computers operate based on very simple patterns, binary patterns. It could be yes, no, one, zero, one is what it turned out to be. Um, um, and basic switches, uh, and that's what I try to tap into. Like, and it goes back to the point I kind of introduced this with, which was like, you know, we're modeling these far future worlds, but it's tethered into this deeply, you know, human, uh, deeply presentist way pattern of thinking and structure of thinking, and uh, that has its own kind of deeper time horizons because it's been with us for so so many years too. Uh, so that's what I was getting at there. So I, and, you know, and as in all the chapters, I encourage readers to start doing that too. So I, 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 I encourage them to do little input output experiments um, in their heads too, trying to predict like, okay, so um, um, uh, how can you make little chains of causation into the future of cause and effect in your own everyday life? Um, and, and then use those as really, um, kind of simple pragmatic constructions to help integrate deep time, make it more experienced near, make it more of an embodied practice, make it something that you see and sense as you go around um, by using part whole input output reasoning, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense a lot. And I really like the, uh, the idea, the, 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 the imagery of the chain, um, because you also in this chapter talk about kind of going back to this idea of trusting the, uh, the experts, like there's also um, an idea of like how we blame people. And like it, it, you, you illustrate a lot of times that the blame just kind of comes at the last part or the, you know, the, the where it, where, where something goes wrong is that where the blame is, but really we need to look back at like this, this deeper chain and all of the links and to really find out where, where the break happened. And like, it really illustrates that being present, we need to, or we have the opportunity to like make our part of the link super strong. So, so that will hold in the future and give the people in the future an opportunity to continue building on our work. And that's what's so 
so impressive um, with with this overall project, and then with your like analysis and, and instruction um, about about deep time learning that I, I really appreciate, and I, I got a lot out of this book from just that that idea. Um, and like one last thing, I wanna I wanna ask you are just kind of going off of like sensibilities and, and knowledge um, of like our world and realities. At, at the beginning of each chapter, you have these little vignettes. Um, one is a solitary farmer who, uh, who, who lives in, let's see, 12,020, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and their lore is that there's a, there's a salmon or there's a dangerous flying salmon colored venomous snake who kills anybody who digs too close to his cave. And that is the representation of that's their lore of like this uh, this nuclear facility that's buried deep underground that they don't even know about. Um, and then there's one. My favorite one was was your dream about um, about fighting in an army and then uh, switching perspectives and being on the other side. And it's it's kind of this metaphor about how you just need to switch your uh, switch switch perspectives to be able to really understand the world. And I was just curious, like how fun did you have like like writing those like was that a was that just a good time that you're just i'm gonna take some creative liberty yeah, <laughs> yeah that was actually the editor i blame the the, <laughs> the the editor for that uh the um yeah i do start every chapter with this really imaginative kind of like uh scenario uh com- but it's it's never fully you know it's it's never fully fictional right like because because right. like the first one you mentioned you know um um, people are talking about, uh, yeah, the solitary farmer one, right? Like, so that was an excuse, not an excuse, but it was a way of letting the reader see what a landscape in the safety case would look like. So I literally describe, you know, sphagnum mosses and, and small lakes and peat bogs, right. Um, in what used to be a coastal bay, um, there's grassy sedge plants there. Uh, there's the, Arayoki and Lapioki rivers draining out into the sea. Um, I talk about this farmer fishing at a nearby lake, catching pike. There's a beaver swimming around, but then she gets sad, you know, because uh, she recalls that there are all these like freshwater seals that used to live there um, before they became extinct. There, of course, there are freshwater seals in Finland now, which is neat. Um, and you know, because this is in the year, uh, you know, one two zero two zero common era. Um, you know, and yeah, then she reflects on this ancestral deposit beneath her feet. You know, then I say like there was this uh, global war that happened in in three thousand one hundred twelve, right? And um, uh, you know, all the records and government knowledge uh, from the site was destroyed in it, but it exists as these like oral histories and and sort of mythologies that circulate around her local community. Um, so yeah, it just kind of comes out as this mythical story of Lohi Karme, which is this um, uh, dangerous sort of salmon-colored venomous snake that kills anyone who dares to dig too close to the underground cave. Um, and you know, but but even just making this person a farmer was just a way of showing there's going to be peas, sugar, beet, and wheat, with like the safety case says there would be. Um, so it was a way of describing landscapes. It was helping the reader create a figure they can kind of empathize with in the future. It helps them. It helps the reader hopefully think about knowledge loss and like, like the the challenges of long term 
uh, in, in, information preservation and storage. Like, when are we going to lose all these safety case reports? What's the half-life of institutional knowledge? And, you know, especially when we look at something like the SEPO situation, where too much of it was embodied in a single mortal mind um, that it, uh, eventually, you know, succumbed <laughs> uh, to the fickle contingencies of human life, right? So, um, yeah, that was the kind of creative part of the book. But um, I did write an article for Scientific American drawing from that, but arguing, um, uh, which is fully open access if anyone wants to check it out, but it basically arguing that, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to do this. It's interesting to do this, but it also helps us feel empathy for people in the future, right? It, depictions of the world in the future have this powerful, concrete effect on the world today. So when you do a deep time thought experiment, when you do a reckoning, this isn't just a playful game. It's also kind of a serious act of intellectual problem solving, right? It's, it's why the safety case models of future worlds aren't, you know, they're uniquely valuable, I think, because there's these spaces of reckoning, even though they're just mere approximations, right? So, and what, what can this do for us? Well, it can help us take a step back from our everyday lives. It can enrich our imaginations. It can transport us to different places and times. And just taking a little break from these familiar thinking patterns to experience this world um, in new ways can help us kind of overcome mental blocks. It can see the world from a new angle. Like you talked about the dream. Uh, I'd start one chapter with the story of a dream I had there where I'm changing perspectives in a battlefield from one side to the other. Um, um, I, I think this is a source of creativity uh, because you're hopping around between different temporal perspectives. First, you're seeing the world from this like deep planetary Anthropocene time rise. And then you're seeing the world from the perspective of a, a war 50 years ago. Then you're seeing, you know, the perspective of the world when they're decommissioning the nuclear waste repository in the year 2120. So if you put along, put aside, you know, a few minutes of a day, I think if there's a takeaway of my book for this sort of long-termist planetary imagination exercises, right? It can give us this kind of mental dexterity that helps us become navigators of different timescales. And this is precisely, precisely the type of thinking that's crucial during the Anthropocene, um, during what is presented as the deflation of expertise. Um, and it can, in, in doing this through story and narrative is a way of sort of giving a, an, a sense of empathy in the reader and, and me as a writer, ho, uh, a little more for the people and landscapes and organisms that are going to inhabit this world or not decades, centuries, or millennia from now. One of the vignettes in the end of the book actually has is post-human extinction. Um, and it's told from the perspective of a microbe floating in this northern lake, um, but, you know, I'm describing that too, but that's in the year 35,000 uh, or somewhere around there, if I recall. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, 35,000, yep. 35,012. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, but I, and, and even that one was super powerful, though, because for me, at least reading it, it's like, oh, that microbe not, might not be there if the, the people doing the safety case, the experts, um, doing the safety case didn't take all of the time to do all of this, you know, imagining and, and, and put in the effort right now to preserve the future because this nuclear waste has such a long term. I think you said one of them, uh, that the, uh, the uranium, uh, 235 has a half that life of 7 million years. So like, that's, I mean, it's just, I, 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 I do get a sense of the sublime a little bit of like that sublime awe. And, and it really, and, and I really like how you, uh, you put in that there is a, there is an intellectual workout um, when we're when we're grappling with uh, with deep time um, 
So I don't, your book was awesome. And it, it was so, is it it's just on so many levels it it worked and, and made me think in different ways. And, and I, it's, as you said, it's what we, what we need right now. Um, considering all of the, uh, the environmental and societal kind of uh, upheavals that, that we're facing. Uh, but we've taken up so much of, um, of your time, Vincent, and I want to really thank you for, for being on our show. And um, I, the, the last thing that we always like to ask our guests on the New Book Network is, um, you know, just, just thinking about the deep time. Um, what are you up to, to, to like right now or in, in, the, in the future? Do you have anything uh, that you'd like to share? Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. What am I up to now? Well, um, I'm just finishing revisions for an article for American ethnologist on uh, these uh, transuranic nuclear weapons waste drum breach accidents that happened at Idaho National Laboratory in April 2018. So my, you know, deep time reckoning is all about these radically long-term time spans. I just wrote an article about the extremely short-term institutional time spans, sort of the performance bonuses and in, in, in reward systems and incentive structures, and also political pressures uh, to clean up waste hastily or, or quickly, um, and how these have kind of trickled down at this macro scale to the everyday, day-to-day tempos of waste cleanup at Idaho National Laboratory, which is a Department of Energy laboratory, roughly the size of Rhode Island um, that's in in, in, oh in Idaho. They built, I think, 52 nuclear reactors designed there. And um, it's a fascinating place, actually. They do all, they do all sorts of stuff out there. They're, they started building until Kennedy canceled it. Uh, it was supposed to be a nuclear-powered aircraft um, back in the day. Um, <laughs> the, a lot of the naval nuclear submarine stuff is done out there as well. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating little place. They're cleaning up waste that was originally actually from the Rocky Flats um, nuclear weapons production facility in Colorado uh, that was shipped up there, is sort of stored up there in Idaho National Laboratory. Um, and there, yeah, there's this issue that there's like this uh, uh, bad cocktails of uh, chemicals and materials inside drums occasionally that leads to chemical reactions inside of them that causes heat and pressure to build up and then for them to overpressurize or shoot off their lids or or deflagrate, which is when there's fire president, um, or just explode basically in, in, in everyday parlance. And, um, there's kind of this seeming spontaneity to these, but if you start like taking a close look in Idaho, um, or the other big one was in 2000, um, well, if you start taking a close look in Idaho, you see that there's all these institutional, um, regulatory gaps, uh, performance pressures, political, um, pressures and, uh, um, uh, operational processes that kind of conditioned or set the stage for these accidents to occur. So it's spontaneity is it can, can contingency is, is kind of qualified by the systemic or, um, broader infrastructural causes of the accidents themselves. Right. So, um, so that, yeah, so that, that article is pretty interesting too. So I'm doing a couple of, I'm doing this project on these drum breach accidents and the big one, the famous one was, um, in, I, this came out in social studies. I did one article in social studies of science, came out last the came out this year um earlier this year and then one for bulletin of the atomic scientists the journal section of it um came out i think 2018 and that was about the one that happened in the drum breach accidents happened in new mexico actually uh um they were using in los alamos national lab 
when they're you know packing up nuclear waste drums to send them down to the WIP transuranic waste repository in southeastern New Mexico, they um, use kitty litter as an absorbent, um, but they they accidentally use this organic kitty litter called Sweet Scoop to absorb the the liquids inside the drums. And crazily enough, that's putting the wrong type of kitty litter, this sweet scoop, this wheat-based cellulose organic kitty litter in the drums caused 700 of the drums to have, you know, be potential dirty bombs basically because the, the organics interact with, um, with, uh, you know, the, the nitrate salt waste inside of it. So one of them actually goes off and then deflagrates for shoots out fire and radionuclides for two hours on Valentine's day, 2014 in the whip nuclear waste repository, shuts it down for 35 months costs, a billion or so dollars, depending who you ask. Um, all the all the waste from around the complex that was headed down there was gets kind of backed up, and uh, so 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 yeah, that's my new project. Um, looking at the shorter term time spans of accidents, I'm actually kind of um, uh, in those two sites in Idaho and then also um, New Mexico. So uh, I might be working on that more in the years ahead. We'll see. Well, that sounds super interesting and very scary as well. Yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> well, once again, thank you so much for, for coming on, Vincent. We we really appreciated uh, your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. It was great chatting with you, and uh, nice to hear about your research, too. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, take care. <laughs>